All right, um, let's get into this study tonight. We're in Jude, and I have the first verse up here on the screen. In fact, um, we can go through these verses uh, that we're going to do tonight. If you remember from last week, um, we were talking about these folks, and uh, Jude pronounced this woe upon them, right? Uh, woe to them. These are the false teachers. For they walked in the way of Cain. We talked about Cain versus Abel, and this was really about jealousy. And abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. We talked about how Balaam told Balak how to trip up Israel uh, and that his, uh, his heart was was divided and he didn't want to he was god's prophet and he he would do what god told him to do but he also wanted that money apparently as well and perished in korah's rebellion and korah was the one that raised up uh, a group of people to oppose moses so it would seem that these uh, false teachers are actively opposing the apostles and the apostolic teaching okay so now he talks about how they've made their way into the church, he says, or and how they're staying in the church. He said, they're hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. So these are all metaphors to talk about these, uh, these folks. Their wild, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, I know we'll get through those verses, but just in case. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all on all, excuse me, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. That's a lot of ungodlies. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners, there it is again, have spoken against him. All right, so that is a, uh, a quotation from an extra biblical work called uh, First Enoch. And if we get that far, we'll talk about that because it's not a, uh, it's not canonical. That is, it is not accepted as one of the inspired works of the New Testament. So you're not going to like flip through your Bible and find First Enoch anywhere. That's just not going to happen. In fact, you can get a Catholic Bible and look in the Apocrypha, you're still not going to find First Enoch anywhere. There are only a couple of translations of this book, but it was obviously something that they had available to them. Again, I'm not going to comment on it now. If we get to it, I will more. So let's go back up to verses uh, 12 and 13. He says, uh, well, all of these things are various metaphors used in warning. First one is these are hidden. Oh, you know what? I need to turn off that music. I forgot to do that. It's, it's just going in the background. All right. I did that once before, and during the entire teaching, there was music underneath. We're just all used to having music going all the time that I'm not even thinking about it. All right. So let's talk about hidden reefs. What's a reef? R-E-E-F. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's coral that is that is dyed and hardened, right? And uh, so what happens, I mean, these days, 
you know, you've got these huge ships with thick hulls and whatever, but it, let's say you had a yacht or a, you know, just a, a pleasure craft, right? What happens when you sail too close to a reef? Yeah, it's going to gouge a hole in your hull and the water's going to get in and you'll be lucky if you got a pump that can get it out before you get to shore, otherwise it's going to sink. You know, in this day, all these ships were sailing ships and they were made of wood. Um, and so that, you know, that would be gouged by coral in uh, a hidden or unexpected reef. Notice they're hidden reef. Sailors were really good. Even back then, they didn't have radar and all that other stuff, but they, sonar, I guess. Um, but they were able to uh, really know where they were going and what was going on. So a hidden reef would be one that was unexpected. And so that is what we're talking about with, the, with these folks. Um, the Apostle Paul warns of those whose faith had been shipwrecked. That's in 1 Timothy 1.19. So these are those who reject good teaching in favor of heresy that will bring this about. So you've got to be careful who you listen to. You know, a lot of times people are our friends and we like them personally, but they have strange beliefs. And, you know, we may feel that in order to get along with them, that we need to have some degree of agreement and say, oh, well, okay. But you can be friendly with someone, you can care about them and agree to disagree. In fact, I think that would be uh, a really uh, important virtue in our day. I, I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't agree with either side. I, I'm at a point now, please forgive me, because I, you know, you talk politics and you just make everybody mad. But I'm ready for Trump to go away now. I mean, he did some good things and I'm glad. You know, I, I'm ready for him to go away now. And we'll just deal with this newest situation that we got, you know. Yeah, it's just, I, you know, the guy just doesn't want to admit defeat. And, you know, there's lots of evidence out there that there were, you know, shenanigans going on, but apparently not enough evidence and not enough shenanigans to swing the election uh, the other direction. My point is, um, you know, I, I, I voted completely against uh, Democrats this year because of the extreme left turn that they've taken. About the only Democrat that I could consider supporting is this lady named Tulsi Gabbard. Right, look her up. Very interesting woman. Right, uh, I like Rand Paul, who I guess he's technically a Republican, but he's he's very much like his dad. Uh, he's a libertarian. His dad was the libertarian candidate for president forever. Um, and uh, interesting guy, man, just really like a lot of the things that he says. But I'm looking at this situation with the budget and I'm just thinking, you know, randomly sending out $600 checks to every human being is, it just seems ridiculous. People that need it should apply for it. And that, that's great. But even then, where's the money coming from? All that to say, I'm not trying to enter into politics. I just find myself not agreeing with either side. You know, so here is... Uh, there's, there's some guy right now that Trump is, you know, opposed to, well, he's opposed to everybody that doesn't like him, but in any event, and uh, he's like, oh, I'm going to get you back and all this other stuff. I'm like, you know, maybe we need to listen to some of those other folks that are kind of in the middle instead of thinking, no, I'm over on this side or no, I'm over on this side. Maybe they have something to say, you know, maybe that, that could be good. Uh, but if you find yourself in that kind of position, then it's difficult to get along 
with everyone if they require you to agree with them. So I encounter all sorts of folks in the theological world, uh, the church world, that have very, very distinctive beliefs. And it is kind of their central belief. You'll find that a, that a lot of people that come out of uh, certain churches, they have a central belief that everything else sort of revolves around, okay? So you have Calvinists. You may not be familiar with this. Sometimes they will call themselves Reformed. And this central belief is essentially predestination, all right? You have dispensationalists, and this central belief is about the millennium and uh, the fact that Christ is going to return and reign on earth literally for a thousand years before he permanently sets up the kingdom on earth. And there's just a whole interpretive framework that's built around that, okay? Let's change metaphors and call it a foundation, right? This is their foundational belief. Your foundational belief should be in the fact that Jesus Christ is God's son who died on the cross and rose from the grave. And if we can agree on that, we can agree to disagree on some of these other things. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not a dispensationalist. Um, there, I was reminded again that there are folks who are, for lack of a better term, KJV-only people. They think any other translation of the Bible is just heresy. And if you are reading any other translation of the Bible, then you can't be correct, right? But see, even though I am reading another translation of the Bible and I can have a discussion about that, I could still try to have fellowship with them if they will have fellowship with me. In other words, what I'm trying to say is you don't have to agree with everything someone says in order to be tolerant and friendly toward them and even have a limited amount of fellowship, right? Um, but we have come to a time when folks that once got along and could have discussions and, you know, you had some friends that were like this, and I had, you know, a man that, uh, that I had discussions with. I've mentioned him before. Uh, he was a Jewish atheist from New York. He's a civil rights lawyer. I always had very civil conversations with him until right around the election in 2016 on Facebook, and he just started getting rude, just like everybody else. And so I just unfriended him, and I just don't have conversations with him anymore. So I think that uh, we can agree to disagree with folks, but we've got to look at what they are demanding of us in order to be friends. If they're demanding that you surrender your essential beliefs in order to be their friend, then it's time to withdraw, right? Um, I'm going back when I, was, when I was writing my notes earlier today about this, um, talking about hidden reefs, that, you know, false teaching that is kind of worms its way into a church or denomination or, you know, into the evangelical movement period. That there was a group that I don't hear much about anymore um, called the Emergent Church from the early 2000s. And many of these folks, the reason you don't hear them anymore is that they've just been absorbed into the mainline churches and their progressive approach to Christianity. And progressive sounds like a wonderful word, and you know, everybody should be progressive, right? But theology is not predicated on an understanding that you're going to learn uh, more and newer and newer revelation. 
we can learn more and more and we can grow deeper in our faith. But what has been revealed has been revealed once for all and passed on to the saints. Christ is the final revelation of God to human beings. So when we've got, you know, Muhammad coming along 500 years later and, you know, receiving these revelations and coming up with an entire new, entirely new religion that we now call Islam, reinventing who Jesus is and so forth. Uh, and then 1500 years or more later, actually 1800 years later, um, you have uh, Joseph Smith coming along and, you know, by his testimony, he, you know, had a vision and talked to this angel, I think his name was Moroni or something along those lines. Uh, and he said, well, which church should I join? And this angel said, none of them, they're all apostate. It's ironic, isn't it, that Mormons want to be considered as just another church today, right? But they have a book of Mormon that is completely fabricated history and additional revelation. And further, Mormons can be some incredibly nice people and you can have a, a you know, a relationship with a, a Mormon person and enjoy fellowship with them, you know, just uh, on a personal level. But you don't need to go to, you know, the, the Mormon church in order to, uh, to get along with someone like this, because this is, this would be a classic example of a hidden reef. Um, I've mentioned this, I think, in here before, perhaps in relation to either this or Second Peter, because Second Peter addresses the same problem, false teaching that's wormed its way into the church. But when I was a youth minister in the colony many years ago, there were a pair of Mormon missionaries. The Mormon missionaries are these young guys. They're, you know, 19 to 20, 21, 22. Um, if they always wear white shirts and ties. They ride bicycles. You'll never know their last names. They're called elder and their first name. You know, they'll live in some apartment somewhere. They're isolated from their family and everybody. And they just rove and, you know, uh, uh, proselytize. And so these two guys had made friends with one or two of our kids in our youth group. And so they started coming to our youth meetings. And then what they want to do is they want to, they want to steal sheep, Right. They want to start pulling those kids away and bringing them over to the to the Mormon church. Um, you remember Aaron, right? Uh, that stayed at your house and was in your son's youth group in the early days. Um, his, I can't remember which part of his family, part of his, I think it's his, his biological dad is Mormon, if I remember correctly. But he was talking to Mormon missionaries for a while. But he really wanted to, you know, Proved to them, and I was like, Aaron, you need to be careful with because they just keep coming. They don't stop coming. They keep coming. They'll invite you, you know, come over to dinner and do this and this and this. This becomes a hidden reef is what it becomes. You have to be careful. So I am, hopefully you don't interpret me as saying isolate yourself and don't have relationships with people. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying you need to be careful what is required of you to be in that relationship, right? Then he says, they feast with you without fear. So these love feasts that they had back then were uh, the Lord's Supper or communion combined with a, a, a community meal. They met together and they were like Baptists back in the day. They just loved to meet and eat, right? So uh, years ago, there was, uh, there's this, this, this fella, and I guess he makes these movies with his brother, uh, who's made all these movies like Courageous and uh, uh, 
what was the first one? Facing the Giants or something like that was the first one. Um, and I think that was the first one. It's like a football movie. They're Christian movies. Was it Facing the Giants? Was that the name of it? I think that was the first one. And when they, they hit the credits at the end, I knew that it was like a small budget film. They did a fantastic job with it. But when they hit the credits at the end, there were so many credits about uh, meals that had been provided. I thought this has to be a Baptist church. And it turned out it was. It was like all the actors and everybody had to be about, they just love to eat, you know? So they had these love feasts. Well, obviously, table fellowship was a very, very important uh, thing in the, in the ancient world. Inviting someone over to your house and sitting down to a meal with them. And it, it's still important today, but I don't think we take meals together as important as that once was even in this country. Um, but they were, this is why the, the Pharisees were very careful about who they permitted into their homes and who they allowed to eat with them. They took this to the extreme. And this is why Jesus was uh, consistently criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? You know, what are you sharing your table with these horrible people for? All right. And that's, you know, uh, if I go the direction I'm going to go, my message is going to be all of 10 minutes long tomorrow uh, at the, uh, we have so much content tomorrow. If I'm going to keep this thing to seven o'clock, it's going to be tricky. So it means a short service. But the, the verse of scripture that forms the basis for the organization of this church is from Matthew 9, 12 and 13. And Jesus is being criticized there for uh, eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he said, it is not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he said, yeah, um, uh, um, well, I'm doing this again. I did this the other day at church. I've memorized this verse many years ago. Um, uh, I came to call the righteous. I, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what he said. All right. So this is the point. Um, Jesus was speaking to people who needed to hear him. He was speaking to people who knew they were sinners. He came to call sinners to repentance. If you think you're righteous, you're never going to repent because you think that what you're doing is right. If you think that you're well, you're never going to go to the doctor and get well, right? So um, these people are, are involved in table fellowship with uh, these Christians, and he says they, they, they're not even afraid. So they're so self-assured and reckless in their false teaching that they fail to fear God's judgment on their wickedness, which, of course, they do not consider to be wrong. Don't we see that today? There's all sorts of attitudes um, and perspectives that would have once been considered immoral that the Scripture considers immoral, that not only are people pursuing wholeheartedly, but are advocating for and seeking to gain acceptance for and are brokering no compromise with anybody who would disagree. It's not enough that you are tolerant. It's not enough that you're accepting. You need to celebrate this. You need to step right in the middle of it and you need to walk lockstep with these people, 
right? Um, so then, it, then he says, they are shepherds feeding themselves. Well, the shepherd cares for the sheep. Obviously, you know, you've got children, you care for children, you've got to care for those children, but you have to eat. If you get sick, you can't care for them, right? So you do have to care for yourself, but your primary responsibility is care for those children. Uh, I've always thought it was interesting when you're on an airplane and they give the little speech, uh, you know, about, you know, when pressure is lost in the cabin and, you know, the masks drop down. Uh, you know, they always tell the adults, put the mask on yourself first before you put it on your child. Because, of course, you care about your child and you're going to be wanting to reach down there. But if you pass out, they're going to die, too. So you pop that thing on yourself and immediately take it. So he's not saying that it's a bad idea for shepherds to feed themselves. He's saying that this is the purpose of these folks. The shepherd cares for the sheep and he ensures that they find good pasture in which to feed the wicked shepherd, the hireling, the thief, all of these use and abuse the sheep. The Old Testament prophets warned Israel's leaders using this same metaphor. Uh, listen to this from, uh, from Isaiah 56. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They, all, they are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They're dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. Come, each one says, let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer and tomorrow will be like today or even far better. So these are obviously people that are in leadership in order to feed themselves, care for themselves, to uh, receive from that. And we have this from Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah has a lot to say about wicked shepherds. And shepherd, again, remember, is used as a term to refer to leadership in Israel. That's what pastor means. Pastor is a shepherd. Uh, Jeremiah 12.10. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. And then this from Jeremiah 23, which is, by the way, that whole chapter is about bad leadership, okay? Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. So this earlier said that they feast with you without fear. The connotation there is that they should be afraid because judgment day is coming. Um, and then this from Ezekiel. So this is the third prophet we're quoting now from the Old Testament, third major prophet. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? So once again, I want you to consider Christian leaders, celebrities, celebrity whatever, worship leaders, celebrity pastors. Who are they doing this for? Are they caring for anybody? In fact, I think that it is important that the leadership model that God provides for us is a shepherd. Shepherds had a very intimate relationship with their flock. In fact, Jesus says in uh, John chapter 10, 
my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. Sheep understood their master's voice, right? So this is like, you know, you and if you have a, if you have a dog, I'd say a cat, but cats don't care. <laughs> they, they have their own, their own way, man. The only time I've ever seen a cat come is when you say kitty, 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 kitty. And I don't know why that is. The only way we could ever call our cats is go kitty, 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 kitty. You can call their name all you want, and they're just going to lay there and just look at you like, what? It, I don't know, right? But your dog knows your voice. You call your dog. In fact, you know, you can have certain gestures and tones of voice, and your, your dog recognizes that. So the kind of relationship a shepherd had to his sheep would be similar to the kind of relationship that you might have with your pet. Um, not you can't be on that level with every one of your sheep, but th these are smaller flocks. So you know the shepherd tended for a flock that was manageable for that shepherd. Um, but in churches today, it seems like there is more of a, a a cattle mentality. Everybody's being herded the same direction. You know, you've just got this vast ranch with cattle just out there feeding on their own. You know, and the rancher goes out there and rides among them, and then when he needs to, he just drives them where they need to go. And I, I'm just wondering, and I'm wondering out loud, but I've been thinking about this for a while, if God is not in the process of reorienting our perspective on church again through this COVID situation. Churches like ours just keep on meeting. Now, there are churches that are small like ours that are not meeting as well, but churches that are larger, have they have so much more to be concerned about. Um, and so a lot of those churches waited for quite a while before they met. They had to really put some things together. But it's easier for me in a room this size, a building this size, a group this size, to make sure that everybody's okay, to make sure I communicate to you what you need to hear. That's just, that's not possible when you have this massive group of people. Now, I came to faith in a large church, so I don't have anything against large churches. Uh, that church and large churches that are uh, doing their job have small groups. Now, our church didn't have the, the home groups that you find prevalent today. It was Sunday school. But that's how you met people and knew people was from your Sunday school. So there was a Sunday school department, and then there were Sunday school classes. And it's a good way of organizing. You knew these people, and then you knew these people really well. And then, you know, you had a ministry that was around that particular group of people, and you did things with those. So, you know, that worked well. So you can have a big church that can, but you have to understand that the, the, the head pastor it's really probably not the one shepherding you. You probably don't even know that guy. I barely knew the pastor of, of our church. Now, I, I had, uh, I wrote him a few times, and he always wrote me back, hand wrote me back, but this is a pastor that was on TV back in the day. He would have been the equivalent of a, of a celebrity pastor, but he just preached the gospel. And I met with him one time in his office, uh, and uh in fact, uh, one of my former students actually worked with him uh, where he is now. Um, it's escaping me. Uh, where did your son go to college? 
No, the other one. Howard Payne, which is in what city? Brownwood, thank you. That's where Pastor Jackson is. Yeah. Well, I just, I, I, again, this is the second time I've forgotten part of a verse that I memorized 100 years ago. Um, but yeah, he's, he's still there and he does an evangelism program at Howard Payne. Um, but he had been in Phoenix, Arizona when uh, I came to faith and had a television ministry. It's one of the reasons why I wanna make sure we're always online, make the, the service available to people. Um, but that church, you know, you didn't know him. He was just a figure that was just up there. There needs to be someone who is pastoring you in your life that you can know. Now, that doesn't mean you're you know, gonna be having a meal together every day or something like that, but you know, we can do that in a church this size. And as I said, I think that that's one of the reasons, uh, or one at least, I won't say the reasons, one of the outcomes of this COVID situation. As I was watching this, I want you to think with me. Do you remember when they first started shutting everything down? They said groups of 500 or more can't meet together. Groups of 250 or more cannot meet together. Groups of 50 or more cannot meet together. Groups of 10 or more cannot meet together. Let's just think about that now. That's really a good breakdown of what maybe an average medium church would be, right? And you just, you think of those levels and you start considering what is it about a group of a certain size that is dangerous? Well, it's, it's just the only danger is that there are so many people in the same room next to each other that could be spreading this, right? But as the group goes down, the danger goes down because there are fewer people there to spread that. But eventually it spreads anyway, right? Which it indeed it has. But I started thinking, you know, on an average Sunday in here, I mean, we'll have 50, 60, 70 people, sometimes 25 or 30 or 35 people, right? Um, but this is one of the reasons why I, I just haven't been, well, I, I looked at the rules and initially that, you know, they were making churches go by everybody else's rule. Um, and it was going to be, it was 50% of the capacity of your building. I had forgotten. See, before we built this stage right here, you wouldn't have recognized this room. It had this old blue low nap carpet. It had those theater seats, you know, that, that flopped down and they had the fabric on them was really, really worn. Well, the carpet and those seats had come from the Plaza Theater over there. The owner of the Plaza Theater sold it to the city of Garland for, I think, a dollar. And then the city of Garland put over a million dollars into it. If you go and look at it, I mean, they've revived, they've revised it even since then. And uh, it's nice. I mean, they did a really good job. But all those old, the Garland Opry bought all those old seats and that old carpet that was over here. Used to be, you'd sit on one of those seats and you'd get up and there'd be a spring that would come out and grab your pants and tear a hole in them. So now this carpet's sold, it's got, you know, a million stains on it. But long story short, the reason that stage is so tall is because the bathrooms are over there. And so there was just one central aisle so when anybody gets up to go to the bathroom, you've seen it happen at church, haven't you? You know, your eyes just naturally kind of follow them. <laughs> you know, it's annoying to me because 
It's never the visitors that do that. It's always people that have been here forever and ever, right? It's not people with tiny bladders. It's people who are bored. <laughs> it's what it makes me feel really good about myself, right? But the reason I brought that up is the, uh, actually this, the capacity in here is 180. So that means I can put 90 people in here with that original. So I was never worried. And then the governor said, no, well, you don't, you don't need to worry about that. And now the Supreme Court has affirmed that. L.A., which was trying to shut down, well, it has shut down churches, really trying to shut John MacArthur's church down. He was like, no. Well, now this, this order from the Supreme Court that was just recently uh, passed has made it all the way down to L.A. County. And so now there's just complete victory. They, they can't shut churches down, right? But see, that doesn't mean that we're not responsible for providing opportunities for your health and safety. So you're coming in here. You know, it's a small group, but I've got the chairs spread out here, right? There's masks available back there. I've got this stuff um, that I have sprayed the whole church down with on a number of occasions that is used by hospitals. And um, uh, I'm going to forget the name of it, too. But it kills the virus. So nonetheless, I've just, I've wondered if that's not an outcome. And so it says that these are, these are folks are coming in and they're, they're shepherds that are feeding themselves. So I think that it is important to have someone in your life, to be in a church, to be in fellowship, to have someone in your life that is offering that, uh, that shepherding, that direction and that teaching. Um, shepherds in the church are supposed to be teachers, pastor teachers, right? In fact, that's one of the qualifications for an overseer in the church. We need to be able to teach, all right? Then he says they're fruitless trees in late autumn. So by this time, these uh, false teachers, these, these fraudulent leaders should be um, bearing fruit. Well, what is fruit? Right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we're going to see, if we get down that far today, if not, then after the break, we're going to see that these folks do not have that kind of spirit-filled attitude at all, right? They're not displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Further, um, I should be impacting the lives of other people positively and appropriately, and then I need to be bringing people to Christ. And this is all about fruit, right? But these people are not bearing fruit. He says they are fruitless trees in late autumn. The idea here being they should be bearing fruit at that point, whatever this type of fruit uh, this tree would be. Usually we think of autumn as being the time of harvest, right? So I think that's what's being referred to here. And then he says they're twice dead, uprooted, so doubly dead, no good for this world and no good for the kingdom. That's what I think that might mean. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We've got to, ha we've got to have our roots down deep in the ground. We've got to be attached to the one who gives us that that sap, if you will, so that we can produce fruit, right? So a branch that is broken off from the tree or a branch that's broken off from the vine stops being alive. That is a live Christmas tree right over there. 
I put it up shortly after Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty dry. Guys, this is you and I without the spirit. We just dry up. And I'm sorry for those of you that's probably outside of the view of what you did, but it was a Christmas tree and I was picking the needles off of it that are very dry right now. All right. Um, I like this in the Psalm, Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, what is that person like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. That's what I pray all the time. I, you know, even people that are, that are not believers, um, you know, I, when I, you know, leave a, leave behind a, a blessing, people don't understand these super spiritual religious blessings that we leave behind, but they can understand, have a prosperous day. <laughs> you know, I like, I like the, uh, the, uh, the blessing or the, the wish in Spanish for New Year's. We always say, Happy New Year. They say, Prospero Año Nuevo, which is a prosperous New Year. Well, that's good. Be prosperous. Be in health, right? That's not me preaching a health, wealth gospel. I want you to have the resources so that you can be a blessing, right? I want Nicholas to get some big tips, man, you know? I want to, sure, if we're going to get these COVID checks, then okay, fine. The government's going to print money and send it. Great. You know, then let's just, let's use it for something good, right? We can understand prosperity. We just need to be productive with that prosperity and not waste it on, you know, junk, which normally I would waste stuff on technology. I think I've been pretty good though. This, I, I really, really like this laptop. And that's why I pulled it down from up there and started using it here because I was having trouble with my old 2009 laptop. But this is a 2015, right? So you don't necessarily have to have the latest greatest. Sometimes you can get something that works just extremely well and we're just being sold a bill of goods that says that we've got to have, I went ahead and updated my, my phones. And so um, I got the iPhone 11. But I could have gotten the iPhone 12. All I had to do is wait just a little bit, right? I could have gotten this nifty uh, uh, Series 6 that Sue is sporting right now. She's never had one before, so she just got one. I've had all of them. I had the Series 1. I didn't have the 2. I had the 3. I had the 4. And this is the 5. But I bought this on eBay as well. But I bought both of these just before the new one was released, you know? So sometimes... You know, if you know where to shop now, I'm, I'm about this close to not doing much business on eBay anymore. I'm not going to go into those stories, but I've had a bunch of issues. I sold my iPad on eBay and the shipper damaged it, but I bought insurance on it. Now, I don't think, I think that they would, they would pay for it anyway because they damaged it, but I bought insurance on it. And so I told the lady when she got it, hey, I got this insurance. All you got to do is 
let them let the shipper inspect it. I you know made the claim. Now they need to come. They tried to come and pick this up from this lady no fewer than four times. And now she's sending it back to me. In order to send it back to me, she's going to have to pack it. And she's going to have to give it to the shipper anyway. So now I got to give her all of her money back. And then I got to get the shipper to inspect it anyway. Yeah, getting tired of all that business. Twice dead, uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Has, has that moved on on the, on the screen there yet? Yep, it's gone to the next one. There's the next one right there. All right. So these folks are restless. They're reckless. They're rash. They're unrestrained. This, remi this just reminds me of a lot of folks out there today, right? Not necessarily religious folks. In fact, I read another article today, and it said, it asked the question, is politics the new religion? It certainly is some people's religion, right? Yeah. Even people that would call themselves Christians, they seem to me more interested in politics and people's political viewpoints than they are about Scripture. I, I post Scripture all the time. But if I post something about a particular political candidate or politician or political viewpoint, boom, 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 boom. Everybody wants to jump on and say something. Where's your interest? What do you love? You know? So um, I think that this would be descriptive of this scripture I'm about to read from Philippians 3.19 would be descriptive of these people that Jude is addressing, but it would also be descriptive of a lot of people today. Listen to it. This is Philippians 3.19. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Right? So there it is right there. Uh, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own. So by what they do, they're, they're stirring up that, that shame. Okay? And then he says, They're wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. He's basically likening them to demons, fallen angels, right? Listen to what it says in Isaiah 14, 12, and you'll understand why I say that. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. That's where we get the name Lucifer, okay? Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. So this is a passage in Isaiah 14 that begins talking to an earthly king, but then it starts saying things that could not be true of an earthly king. So it is apparently talking to the power behind that king's throne, which in this case is Satan, who wanted to elevate his throne above the throne of God. Listen to this from Revelation 12, 4, and you'll see why I said these wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved are uh, demons. It's talking about the dragon, which is Satan. It says, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And of course, this is uh, speaking of the birth of Christ and Herod seeking to kill the child. The point is, Satan was able to convince a third of the angels of heaven to follow him, and they fell to earth. Some of them are in the abyss now, right? Um, 
So there is, there's no hope for those. And he's saying that about these people. Essentially, people that follow Satan's lie will follow Satan. Satan is going to be cast ultimately into the lake of fire, and that is the ultimate destiny of those who reject Christ. It says in Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. Um, so eternal destruction is their destiny and their doom. Um, listen to this from Matthew 8, 12. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is talking about those uh, of Jesus' day who thought that they were a part of God's kingdom, but who were rejecting Christ. And then we find this in Matthew twenty-two thirteen. Then the king told the attendants, and this is from a parable, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is another way of describing hell, this, this gloom, this separation, this darkness, this, uh, this loneliness, if you will. All right. Um, and I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to end here because this next, this next verse, uh, or these next two verses, excuse me, are controversial. This is the passage I was telling you about from uh, the extra biblical work called First Enoch. And so I've got extended quotes here from that book, and uh, I will cover this passage. Suffice it to say, um, I would say the same thing about this as I said about that, that extra biblical work that he quoted earlier or alluded to earlier in the letter, the the assumption of Moses. Do you remember when we talked about that? That he is referring to something that is telling a valid truth. But that doesn't mean that he's affirming, affirming the what we would call the canonicity of First Enoch. No early Christian affirmed that First Enoch was canonical or inspired even on the level of Paul's letters. Right, but to be uh, honest, um, and you know, to to take you know what he says seriously, he does seem to to look at this as as at least this passage as being inspired. And I think if you look at it, you see that it does speak of judgment in the same way as Israel's prophets spoke of judgment, and indeed as the book of Revelation speaks of judgment. I'm going to read it just to tease you with it, and uh, maybe to get you to come back uh, after the, the break. It was also about these, that's these false teachers, these wicked men, that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Interestingly, this is the only verse he quotes. So he, he's taking it seriously, right? So there are other books that you can read besides the Bible that can convey truth and communicate truth. But we want to stick to the scripture to make certain that we are able to validate that that is indeed the truth. So I'll talk more about that letter uh, when we return. Remember, we're not meeting next week, but the week after that, we will meet again. All right? <laughs>